Grasses and Trees in the Great Earth, Session, August 2015. This is the third full day. Have you been enjoying the water element in the body, outside the body? The flowing quality in the mind, noticing stickiness in the mind, cohesion. Each of these investigations is so wonderful. This session is quite different from our other sessions. Typically, we sit together in the Zendo in session for six to eight hours a day, and the determination spirit of the group grows day by day until it becomes quite palpable when you walk in the room. As each, person mind, each person's mind settles, there's a synergistic effect when we sit this close together for this long. And the whole room takes on a depth of quiet. Even people who come here when we're not doing sashin can detect it as soon as they walk in the room. And the teachers are like gardeners, planting seeds of dharma works, becoming aware of each person's challenges and each person's breakthroughs, and tending to each person's needs in Sanzen. In this session, the primary teacher is the natural world, the grasses, the trees, and the great earth, just as the title says. Also the sun, the sky, the clouds, the stars, the wind, the water, the trees, they're all just waiting for us to let go of our self-obsessed thoughts and to open our minds to the teachings of the world. I could say of their world, but it's also our world. But when we're close to it, it's their world and not our world. Nature has been our primary teacher for 200,000 years. How is it that we've come to close it out? For 200,000 years, we didn't spend all day in little boxes with climate control. We spent most of our day outside, gathering or trapping things to eat, firewood to keep us warm, and the raw ingredients for making things that were essential to our survival obsidian for spear points, arrowheads, things for weaving baskets, for making clothing, for building our little shelters. We were completely in tune with the natural world. One of the intelligences that people have for their at least eight intelligences. So there's musical intelligence, there's mathematical intelligence, there's artistic intelligence, there's kinesthetic body intelligence, athletes, 
There's naturalistic intelligence, knowing about the natural world. And there's spiritual intelligence. In this session, we bring those two intelligences together by learning from the natural world. For 200,000 years, we didn't travel at high speeds in little climate-controlled boxes with wings or wheels. We walked or rode pack animals at a slow pace. Everyone these days notices when they actually walk somewhere how much more they sense and feel. We walked at a landscape, through a landscape alive with sounds and smells and shapes and colors. For 200,000 years, we didn't sit in front of glowing screens, glowing TV screens, glowing computer screens, bombarded with the sights and sounds of news broadcasts about murders and wars and landslides and nuclear weapons and bombings. We listen to ancient stories of our ancestors or the gods as we watch the sparks and glowing embers of fires and the slow wheeling movement of the constellations in the black heavens. We knew the coming and going of the tides, the hidden currents in the river, the calls of all the birds, how close the howling coyotes are now, the waxing and waning of the moon, the weather predictions carried on the subtle changes in the wind and told by the shapes of the clouds. No wonder we feel alienated and lonely. We have cut ourselves off from our natural home, our best companions, and our finest teachers. We have to buy special equipment at REI and do artificial events like camping or hiking trips in order to touch the comfort and wonder of this world again. In order to touch it for a few hours, once we've erected the tent, unrolled the mats and the sleeping bags, put up the mosquito net encased pavilion, unfolded the camp table and chairs, pumped up the Coleman lanterns, cooked dinner on the Primus stove, and washed dishes in water from a stream. Then we're ready to sit down and enjoy nature (laughs) for 10 or 15 minutes until the cell phone rings. This session gives us a few days, a few days at least, to rejoin our natural home, to open to the rich and continuous sensory experience of our home. It's not a surprise that we're never at ease in the the unnatural world. It's not a surprise that we are never at ease in the unnatural world, the person-constructed world. It's not a surprise that we are at ease in the natural world. It has been our ancestral home for 200,000 years, which reflects back to us like a mirror all the qualities of our natural mind. 
timeless, and yet always on time, exactly on time. Indifferent to tiny, short-lived humans, and yet warmly nurturing. Infinitely still, and yet filled with activity, ceaseless activity. The natural world reflects back to us like a mirror all the qualities of our natural mind. Today, over half of the world's population lives in cities. By 2050, it's expected to be 66%. Cities are a fairly new phenomenon in our evolution. 8,000 years ago, there was a city of 500 people in the Middle East. 500 people was called a city. A thousand years later, there were cities, a few cities as large as a thousand people. That's smaller than Klatskanai. Two thousand years later, there were a few cities as large as 3,000 people in the Middle East. A few cities of a half a million to a million people appeared around the time of the Buddha and Christ. That's just 2,500 years ago. Cities in the Middle East, cities in the Orient. Tokyo has now 38 million people. 38 million people. In the U.S. in 1880, just 6% of people lived in cities. 94% still lived in their natural environment in 1880. In 1920, 50% lived in cities. In 1990, 75% in the U.S. lived in cities. In 2010, the whole world's population crossed the 50% mark, living in cities, living in rural areas. So living in cities is a very recent phenomenon, in a way, very unnatural phenomenon. It confuses us and deludes us. It's interesting, of course. It's exciting, of course. But we have to remember, what is our natural environment, our natural enlightening environment? Just like a flower needs sunlight, earth, and rain to open, we need time in our natural environment, open to earth, water, heat, and cold, wind, and space, in order for our natural mind, we call it our Buddha mind, to unfold. This is one reason that Mary Oliver's poems touch us. She speaks from intense intimacy with the natural world. She writes, I would like to write a poem about the world that has in it nothing fancy, 
but it seems impossible. Whatever the subject, the morning sun glimmers on it. The tulip feels the heat and flaps its petals open and becomes a star. The ant bore into the peony bud and there is the dark pinprick well of sweetness. As for the stones on the beach, forget it. Each one could be set in gold. So I tried with my eyes shut, but of course the birds were singing. And the aspen trees were shaking the sweetest music out of their leaves. And that was followed by, guess what? A momentous and beautiful silence, as comes to all of us in little earfuls, if we're not too hurried to hear it. As for spiders, how the dew hangs in their webs, even if they say nothing or seem to say nothing. So fancy is the world. Who knows? Maybe they sing. So fancy is the world. Who knows? Maybe the stars sing too. And the ants and the peonies and the warm stones. So happy to be where they are on the beach instead of being locked up in gold. That's from her book, Why I Wake Early. In case you were wondering why we wake early. This is her poem. When I, among the, when I am among the trees. When I am among the trees, especially the willows and the honey locust, Equally the beech, the oaks, and the pines. They give off such hints of gladness. I would almost say that they save me. And daily I am so distant from the hope of myself in which I have goodness and discernment. And never hurry through the world, but walk slowly and bow often. Around me the trees stir in their leaves and call out, Stay a while. The light flows from their branches, and they call again. It's simple, they say, and you too have come into the world to do this, to go easy, to be filled with light and to shine. This is what Mary Oliver says about poems. The poet must not only write the poem, but but must scrutinize the world intensely. Or anyway, that part of the world he or she has taken for subject. If the poem is thin, it is likely so, not because the poet does not know enough words, but because, (laughs) just think of your mind, how many words does it have in it? but because he or she has not stood long enough among the flowers. Because he or she has not stood long enough among the flowers and has not seen them in any fresh, exciting, and valid way. It's not because we have too few words in our mind. 
because we haven't stood or sat still long enough. Tried to pick a few of her poems, and the computer decided to print them all out. Mm-hmm. Said you'll get more. <laughs> we spent a day on the earth element, and Mushin gave a very lovely talk on the water element: external, internal, body-based, and mind-based qualities. Today we begin working with the third element, fire. It may seem confusing to be introduced to a different aspect of the five elements, which is really a different aspect of our existence, each day. A question arises, well, which practice should I do? Solidity, liquidity, and flow, listening to sounds, body scan, loving kindness. Every practice that we do is aimed at the same, very same outcome, liberation. Every practice that we do is aimed at the same outcome, liberation. Freedom from unnecessary suffering. And once the turbulence that suffering causes in our being settles, a blessed life, a blessed life, Each practice involves focusing the mind's attention, what is now called mindfulness practice. Mindfulness is also called heedfulness. We have a chant that says, heedfulness in all that arises, this is the highest blessing. This means that to be aware of all that arises and to be able to choose what we do with it is a blessing. Mindfulness means bringing the mind out of the stress of imagined pasts and imagined futures. They're all imagined. And into the vividness, the truth of the life that we are actually living. We can't trust the past. We can't trust the future. We can trust this very moment. John Kabat-Zinn says, to show up for our life. That takes courage, to show up for our life. To live a real life brings satisfaction and simple joy. It's deceptively simple. And the trees and the leaves are telling it to us all the time. When we point to one of the five elements, we're pointing to Dharma gates. Five Dharma gates out of the boundless Dharma gates. Each element, if we sink the mind into it, can open up into entire realms of experience. So in this session, we're just pointing out how to begin this practice, how to begin to point the mind 
direct the mind towards this Dharma gate and walk a little way into the Dharma gate. It is up to you to continue and deepen it. Each time we remove the mind from a trivial or unhealthy pursuit and place it down on what is real, we are rewiring our brain. In session, we discover that our brain is wired for endless chatter, for hurtful comparisons, for difficulty and even disaster mode. You just watch, what's the wiring? What's the circuitry in the brain? That's what we get to see when we sit. It's not healthy circuitry. If through awareness we detect where the mind is headed, what that circuitry is doing over and over and over again, we have the opportunity to change it. We can pick up the mind and redirect it to a healthy activity. This was the theme of our five immeasurables session last time, picking the mind up and directing it on purpose towards kindness, towards compassion, towards sympathetic joy, towards equanimity. So the stability that we perceive with the earth element, that's the same as the equanimity we were talking about last session. Innate qualities, but covered up. So if through awareness we detect where the mind is headed, we can pick it up and redirect it to a healthy activity. It's just like pulling a two-year-old away from an electric outlet and towards a box of crayons. Like pulling our mind away from the destructive voice of the inner critic and towards the activity we call loving kindness. After a while, we discover that we are doing loving kindness automatically. We've rewired the circuitry in our brain. We're doing loving kindness automatically when someone coughs or we hear someone cry or when we hear today's news about the firefighters who were killed in eastern Washington yesterday. Today's element is fire. We begin with the external element, heat and cold. And we ask our mind to investigate heat and cold by asking ourselves questions. So we have to ask ourselves questions to direct the mind to the subject of our meditation. So close your eyes. Does this room feel hot or cold? Or neither? How do you know? Whatever you choose, how do you know? that it feels hot or cold? What is the raw data, what is the raw sensory data that the mind interprets as hot or cold room? That's the kind of investigation we're doing. When you walk in Kinhin, are there warmer spots on the floor? Ever notice that? When I go up to offer incense and I step aside and the jisha steps aside, I always know, notice that there's a warm spot where the jisha stood just a moment before. How about when you go outside to do outside sitting? Is there a temperature change when you walk out the door or when you walk back in the door? 
How about when you go outside and walk in the meadow? Are there warmer or cooler spots on the ground? What is cool? When you go outside and say, I feel cool. Oh, I feel cool. What does that mean? Taking away the words and going into the actual sensations. So we can investigate the external aspect of the fire element. We can also do an internal investigation. So again, closing your eyes. And we can do a body scan, aware of temperature. So starting with the hair, does the hair feel cool or warm? Or neither? How about the scalp? Is the scalp all over the same temperature? How about the eyeballs, cool or warm, or neither? What exactly is the sensation that you're detecting? How about your nose, cool or warm? Are parts cool and parts warm? And what's the difference? How does the temperature change with breathing? Bringing awareness to the mouth. Is the mouth cool or warm inside? Are there parts in the mouth that are cooler or warmer? How about the hands? Are the hands cool or warm? And the feet, are they different from the hands? What's the warmest place in the body? We scan through quickly now, not part by part, but we scan through quickly. Where's the warmest place in the body? This might take some time to figure out. Where is the warmest place in the body? Where is the coolest place in the body? So just being aware of temperatures in the body can be a very rich and nuanced practice. Fascinating. So right now, with your eyes closed again, Try licking the corner of your lips, not just your lips, but a little bit outside your lips on the skin outside. Like you're trying to lick off a crumb. Okay, now be aware, temperature. Is there a different temperature now on one side than the other? Bringing your awareness to the the sensations of temperature in the place you just licked. Is it constant or changing? Would you describe it as cool, warm, or neither? And if you stayed with it, how long do you think it would last?
is it possible to lick a little tiny bit of skin and then hold the mind's attention on that skin, on the temperature of that skin? You see, mind detailed, mind training. Detailed mind training can occur with no more equipment than just this body. Infinite possibilities for mind training just in this body. So there's a koan about this. Blue Cliff Record, case 43, Tozan, no cold or heat. Main subject, a monk said to Tozan, cold and heat descend upon us. How can we avoid them? So in Japan, this is a reality, even today. If you train at the older monasteries, there's no heat and there's no definitely no air conditioning. And in the winter, it's bitter cold. And in the summer, it is really hot. And August is just like a sauna as soon as you go outside, completely soaked. And the, the salt crusts on your body. So this is a real question. You know, we thought we had some maybe some discomfort or drowsiness sitting in the heat for the last few days. That's nothing compared to what probably the Buddha sat in in India. Cold and heat descend upon us. How can we avoid them? I love the word descend, translated descend, like, oh, it's a plague. It's like something really bad is coming. Cold and heat descend upon us. How can we avoid them? Tozan said, why don't you go where there is no cold or heat? The monk said, where is the place where there is no cold or heat? Tozan said, when cold, let it be so cold that it kills you. When hot, let it be so hot that it kills you. Of course, he's not talking about literal heat stroke or frostbite or freezing to death. He's talking about something different. Notes. This is Tozan Ryokai, who lived in 807 to 869 one of the most distinguished Zen masters and the found, one of the founders of the Soto sect. Tozan visited several masters when he was with the Nansen, one of Basso's disciples. Nansen observed the anniversary of Basso's death. So we do this here too. We observe the, an, the ancestral dates, the anniversaries of some of our founders' deaths in a special ceremony. So Tozan visit, is visiting Nansen, and Nansen is commenting on his teacher Basso's anniversary celebration. Nansen said to the assembly, will Basso come back to us? Will Maizumi Roshi come back to us? Will the Buddha come back to us? Tozan said, if there's company fit for him, he will. Mm-hmm. That's an admonition to us. There's company fit for our Buddha nature to emerge, it will. 
when Tozan was studying with Isan, he asked Isan about another teacher saying, sermons by insentient creatures. So he had heard this phrase from another teacher, ancient teacher, sermons by insentient creatures. And he asked his, te- his teacher, Isan, about it. Isan said, sermons by insentient creatures are given here for us too, but few can hear them. Tozan said, I am not yet certain about them. Would you please teach me? Isan said nothing but raised his hosu, his whisk, straight up. Tozan said, I don't understand. Would you please explain it to me? Isan said, I would never tell you about this with the mouth given to me by my parents. We try giving Dharma talks. To tell you about it with the mouth given to us by our parents, but we hope that actually the mind and mouth given to us by our parents is moved out of the way and there's something else speaking through us, at least partially. So Isan suggested that Tozan visit Ungan. Coming to Ungan, Tozan asked, who can hear the sermons of insentient creatures? Insentient creatures can hear them, answered Ungan. Someone asked me yesterday, I was talking in the group about using teachers as trees, I mean, using teas as trees as teachers. So this is very important, finding the, you can use us as trees too, I guess, finding a tree to sit under, and I mean close under, I mean right up against not just under, like, oh, it's shading me, isn't that nice? But right up against, really intimate, skin to skin with the tree. And when you do that, after you've been sitting there for quite a while, maybe even days up against different trees, and the mind gets quieter, then you can ask the trees your essential question. And the mind has to, you, you have to wait until the mind is quiet because the mind has to stay quiet and just listen. And part of that is reaching your awareness up to the very top of the tree and reaching your awareness from within the tree down into its roots and down into the earth. So becoming the tree's awareness. Trees are aware of each other. Trees are, there's scientific evidence for that. Trees are aware of each other. So are they aware of us? And if so, how? And if we ask them a sincere question and keep our mind totally receptive, as light as a shadow dancing on the grass, that's how light we want to make our human minds. As light as a shadow brushing across the grass. Then we might hear the sermons of insentient creatures or sentient creatures. Maybe there are no insentient creatures. So Tozan is plagued by this question, who can hear the sermons of insentient creatures? Ungan answered, insentient creatures can hear them. Tozan asked, why can I not hear them? Ungan raised his hosu straight up and said, do you hear? No, I don't. Ungan said, don't you know the sutra says birds and trees all meditate on the Buddha and Dharma? 
At this, Tozan suddenly became enlightened. He wrote the following verse. Wonderful. How wonderful. Sermons by insentient creatures. You fail if you listen with your ears. Listen with your eyes. You hear them. Listen not only with your eyes. Listen with your entire being. Tozan's enlightenment is very touching to me. And it's, uh, I hear that you can still hear the bridge where this happened, this dream and the bridge where this happened in, in China. You can go and visit it. And this is a lifelong koan for me. I keep uh, going over it and going deeper into it all the time. Tozan continued practicing Zazen carefully with close attention. This close attention characterized his Zen and his school and made him a great master. He was ever watchful, and one day when he was wading a stream, actually the version that I know is he was crossing a stream on a bridge, he saw his shadow cast on the water and experienced his great enlightenment. And this was his verse on that occasion. Long seeking it through others, I was far from reaching it. Now I go by myself. I meet it everywhere. It is just I myself and I am not itself. Understanding this way, I can be as I am. So what did Tozan see? What did he see when he saw his shadow on the moving water? Don't accept a simple, shallow answer with any of these koans and go deeply in. This koan points to the deeper internal element of the fire element, the fire that burns brighter within us day by day. As we sit, the energy that moves us towards enlightenment, the laser-focused attention that can light the internal crematory furnace into which we can cast all delusion. This koan speaks to the intense cold of utter emptiness. The intense cold of utter emptiness. And to the hot, bright sparks of all that flows out of that emptiness, like endless showers of fireworks. Please become intimate with the fire element, with heat and cold. Let it burn you away. Do not be satisfied until the separation that keeps you lonely, until all the hurtful voices, until the little box of self that keeps joy locked out are all consumed in the fire of practice. 